I'm not telling you anything new, of course, if I tell you that this is the last day of the year of our Lord, 2017. And although the next 24 hours undoubtedly will be very similar to this 24 hours, we are moving from the old year to the new year. And what thoughts and what reflections does that bring to you? Are you reflecting on the past? And is it then the barely survived regrets or losses, disappointments, or is it the good memories and the fond recalling of tender moments? And then on the future, is it the optimism of ambitions, of hopes, of intentions, of exciting challenges, or more of the same fears, uncertainties, illness, and miseries? Or are you thinking about time itself? Time is such a strange and unfathomable thing. It is always and never is enough. It is here every instant and then the moment is already past and irretrievably gone. Does it make you a little melancholic? Like Macbeth, life is but the walking shadow a poor player that struts and frets his hour upon the stage and then is heard no more? Or are you filled with excitement and anticipation and looking forward at the year of our Lord 2018? Or maybe it makes us wonder and reflect just for a moment about the broader questions of where from? Where to? What for? What is the purpose of our life? And from where should we get the ethical guidelines to live it? This morning we will briefly reflect upon the question, where from? And what that tells us. And then this evening we will look at the where to and what that tells us. So first, the where from. And of course, the obvious choice is Genesis, which part we read. It's well known. And as we also know, the text is very much a battlefield, if not a minefield, of different opinions and often seen as the ultimate test of faith. Now, I may have mentioned this before. When you start reflecting on a text on a narrative, then it's often worthwhile to ask yourself three questions. What, so what, now what? What? What does the story actually say? And you study the context, the historical background, the difficulties in the language, and if you use the footnotes in your study Bible, that already often gets you a long way. And it turns out that there is a lot more to it than you may have thought at the first glance. But then there is the second question. So what? What are the implications for us today? What are the consequences of what we just read in that story? And then finally, of course, now what? What are we going to do? What conclusions do I draw for my life? here today. Do I just sit there for this hour 
You sort of let the story woft and warble around your ears till the hour is past. Or you take a look at it and you say with the American military, snuff. Situation normal, all fouled up. No change, carry on. Or do you draw conclusions as to what it is that you should do and how you should lead your life? Now, it is very briefly that we will try to address these three questions and really only touch upon, because the Bible is too broad, too rich, too multifaceted a diamond to claim that we will come anywhere near to answering the questions in full. But I would like to summarize the message from God's word for you this morning as follows. We are on a journey from garden to city. And we will first look at the beginning of that journey, the garden creation. And then we will look at the three questions. What? What does the creation story tell us? And then we will look at the so what? God is creator and king. And then we will look at the now what? We should be living in his providence and praise. So then we are on a journey from garden to city and we first this morning look at creation. Now what does that story of creation actually say? And what is the point that that narrative is making? Now, as you know, there are many people like Hawkins and Dawkins and Brian Cox say Genesis is a myth. Science has explained the process. It's an evolutionary development. Hundreds of millions of years. Now, I think we're now up to 14 to 20 billion years. And first there was a hot, dense mass of energy the size of a pebble from where we do not know. And then something called it to bang. What caused it, we don't know. And then there is a long theory that involves the primordial soup and a long process of chance mutations and the survival of the fittest. Creation is a myth. And the views are sometimes pronounced quite phenomenous and vitriolic. Sometimes the people are less of a passionate rationalist than they strike you as an ardently believing jihadist. And there is at times limited understanding of the limitations of science. Because philosophers have long understood that the claim that science, natural, theological or otherwise, can objectively, neutrally and definitively proposition truth is wholly unsustainable. One may have, of course, an hypothesis about some law or regularity in nature, but logically one cannot exclude the unique event in the past nor, refu nor a refutation of the theory in the future. And that view is not to be confused with postmodernism, because you can certainly believe that there is a truth without thinking that we have or can fully grasp it. But then you know that there is also the other side of the debate, there is creationism and intelligent design. And some of their proponents are believing people who respect the Bible and its creation narrative. 
But can we use the story as a source of facts and data for such theories? We need to carefully and respectfully read the text and also realize that claims that it doesn't make can't be wrong. What is the important part of the story of creation and how should we read it? And what does it tell us about where we are from? Is it one of the several mythical accounts of the time that the narrative was written about creation and flood, of which there are several? Enuma Elish, or the epic of Gilgamesh, there are several. Or maybe is it a story that does claim the truth, the biblical truth, but does so in the context of its age? For example, it is a framework narrative written in opposition to the views of the academic establishment of the day, but also in the language of the time, not necessarily to be taken literally each step of the way. Well, in order to find the answer, we will look at how the Bible itself uses and applies the story. And there are many places where the Bible itself refers to and uses the story of creation. One we read, Genesis 2. The story of creation is there in chapter 1. And then Genesis 2 tells us how the story that history continued. And it tells us about the formation of men and women, not exactly in the same sequence as the creative acts in chapter 1, because that was not the key point in chapter 2. The focus in chapter 2 is the task that God gave man on this earth, to trust and obey God and to work in his garden, in which, as we know, in chapter 3 they fail. And then another example is Job 38, where Job has demanded that the Lord confirms his innocence after all these fruitless, endless rounds of discussions with his friends about his perceived guilt. But then the Lord questions Job's standing to make such a demand by reminding him that he, God, is the creator. And many elements of the story of creation come back, but the story does not step by step track Genesis 1 because the focus is God is creator and sovereign ruler and he cannot be called to account by his creature, which Job then humbly accepts. And another example is Isaiah 45 and 46, where there are several references to creation, but again, there is no step-by-step -step repetition. Here the focus is, he who created the world is mighty enough to arrange for the Babylonian king Cyrus to be the instrument through which God brings his people back from the exile. So there are in the Bible many variations of the story of creation and many different lessons to be learned. Today we will look at Psalm 104. The psalm itself is a vivid and poetic hymn to God as creator. But the psalm does not just look at creation as a fact from the past. It looks at creation as it is displayed today before our eyes. And the perfect tense in which one would describe the facts from the past are in the psalm actually often the imperfect, a continuous tense, 
which describes the acts of God in the presence. Because fact and act are interwoven. Now, if our psalm has a frame at all, you can find it in verse 1a and verse 35b. Bless the Lord, O my soul. The summary, very briefly, up front. O Lord, my God, you are very great. And then at the end, bless the Lord, O my soul, press, bless, praise the Lord. So there is the conclusion up front, and then there is the conclusion at the end, where in the closing part it is preceded by a more elaborate meditation that starts in verse 31, leading to that conclusion. And that conclusion, praise the Lord, O my soul, is important, and we will come back to it later. Now, there have been many attempts to discern a further structure in the psalm, in this poem, concentric circles, different blocks of text, chiastic structures, and so on. And although we will follow one of these approaches, it needs to be kept in mind that the psalm really defeats the urge to impose a framework or a scheme on it. But within the framework of verse 1a and 35b, we will look at three blocks to help us a bit. The first is the verses 1 to 9, about the Almighty Creator. And then the verses 10 to 23, about the Sovereign Provider. And then the verses 24 to 30, which is an amazed reflection on both points, how many your creatures were total dependence. But then remember that the themes are interwoven and the frame is a bit of a crutch. So first the verses 1 to 9. If you read with me, you will see that God's splendor and majesty are pointed out with the help of several references to creation. And commentators have identified many creation references in this and in the following sections. For example, verse 2a, there is the light created on day one. In the verses 2b to 4, there is the firmament and the division of waters, creation day 2. And then in the verses 5 to 9, there is the separation of the land and the water, day 3. And then the later text refers also, I think, to day 3, still the creation of the vegetation in the verses 14 to 17, day 4, the luminaries in heaven, sun, moon, verses 19 to 23. Day 5 appears the sea creatures in verses 25 and 6. The birds have already been mentioned in 12. And day 6, the animals and man in the verses 21 to 23, already also mentioned in 14 to 18. So you see, it's all referred to, but it's too forced, I think, to extract an exact six-day structure. Because the focus is on the wonder and the joy about God's splendor on display in creation. It is an exuberant hymn about the majesty of the Almighty Creator. And notwithstanding, I think, the clear allusions and the echoes of the creation story, it is not a replication of or a confirmation of the how and the steps and the sequence. Already in verse 9, in the verses 9 to 1, 1 to 9, you see that there are the verbs in the continuous tense. He wraps himself in light, it says, and he lays the beams of heaven and he makes the clouds and so on. 
The focus is not on the past, and the psalmist then shifts his emphasis even more clear to the present. Because secondly, if we move to the verses 10 to 23, there is God's providence for his creatures. From how it came into being in the past now to how creation is working, or better, being sustained in the present. And you can see that the section bursts with verbs of action. Actions by the Lord. Verse 10, he makes. Verse 13, he waters. In verse 14, he makes grass grow. Verse 16, he planted. And verse 20, you bring. You see, there are some who have tried to reconcile the perceived truths of science with the story of creation by describing God as the clockmaker. William Paley is an example. God created the world like a clock and then stepped back and let it run by its own regularities, the laws of nature that we now discover. Others, Dawkins, notable example, have critiqued this view and in its wake attempted to deny creation. But as far as Psalm 104 is concerned, both are like Don Quixote, galloping off fighting their windmills. Because in the psalm, God is portrayed in vivid, admiring, and amazed language as the sovereign provider in creation, totally active and totally involved. And the utter dependence of man and beast on him are sung about in a stark and speaking poem. And the emphasis, as we noticed, has moved from origin to continuation. And several themes can be identified the sea and the waters. For the Jewish people, the sea was always a threatening, unruly, and unreliable element. But not only, says the psalm, had it been relegated to its proper place in creation in the verses 5 to 9, but now they're also support to marshal life, to support, they're marshal to support life in the pastoral picture that you can find in the verses 10 to 16 in creation's continuation. So the threat of that water God had turned into an essential supply or an auxiliary. And then there is reference to the wild and inaccessible mountains and the cracks and the rocks, but it says the Lord turns them into homes for his creatures. And the sun and the moon, which at that time were so often revered as deities, God uses as instruments to mark the days and the seasons. And the allusion may well be to the covenant with Noah in which the Lord guaranteed the continuation of his creation. And the days and the seasons also mark the times he has set for man and beast to forage. Again, verse 21, in utter dependence on him. And so after a section on the almighty creator and the sovereign provider, We then come to the third section in the verses 24 to 30, where he reflects in admiring amazement again on these two themes. Verses 24 to 26. O Lord, how many full are your works. In wisdom you have made them all. The earth is full of your creatures. Your works, you made them all, man included. The homo sapiens of science, our psalm tells us, is just a creature. 
and the sea so often this barrier and so dangerous to traverse, it's turned, our text says, into another highway. And the Leviathan, that great sea monster that so often represented chaos and threat, it's just God's harmless pet fish. And then in the verses 27 to 30, there is the continued reflection on God's providence for all creatures. These all look to you to give them their food in due season. There is a clear dependence on his protection and his benevolence. It is phrased in language that is another clear reminder of creation, because man, as we read, was taken by God from the dust, and God breathed life into him. And when he hides his face, when he is not actively and benevolently preserving our life, they die and return to dust. And at every birth, the word breath and spirit in 29 and 30 are actually the same word. At every birth, it is he who gives life. And after this last poetic observation about the reality around him, the poet closes with the concluding meditation and reflection in the verses 31 to 35, which we already refer to, together with verse 1a, the frame of the psalm. And the focus there is not on what man is supposed to get out of this, but what, on what God should get out of it. He is the creator who should rejoice in his work, verse 31 tells us, and his glory should endure. And this results not in a conclusion of what man can achieve or expect or demand, but in what he has to do. Sing praises to God. That is how the psalm started, and that is how it ends. And that is how creation started, and that is how it will end. More about that tonight. And, of course, it's not a new conclusion, if you are familiar with the shorter catechism. But it is a stark conclusion. Verse 35a, Let sinners be consumed from the earth, and let the wicked be no more is sometimes seen as sort of an odd note of discord. But if we believe that God created the world to his glory and mankind to trust and obey him, to live with him in peace and harmony, then there cannot be any peace with wickedness. And there is no place for the ethics of the survival of the fittest and its resulting egoism, imperialism, racism, and so on. Because for the starting and the concluding exhortation is, Praise the Lord, and may my meditation be pleasing to him, as I rejoice in the Lord. So then, having reflected briefly on the what, the story of creation, here in the psalm and earlier in Genesis, we now need to ask the question, well, what are the implications for us today? What, is, what are the relevant consequences in this story for us here in London at the end of 2017? When we reflect on these questions, where from, where to, what for? The psalmist we saw does not slavishly follow the step-by-step -step description and the sequencing in Genesis 1. 
Apparently, he did not think that that was important for him. But at the same time, if not all, then certainly the major elements from Genesis he refers to, and he integrates them without any hesitation in his psalm and in the recitation of what happened. But he was not drawing any conclusions or confirming any conclusions about the order, the how, the length of the days or the periods. Now, undoubtedly, the world around him, if not in Israel, then certainly in the surrounding countries, there the academics and the experts and the learned people in the know of their time, they had their theories. And all the bright sparks and the opinion leaders of the day, they just had, like today, their opinions and their views. But he doesn't deem it his priority to engage in an argument with them. Now, you may ask, is he not thus avoiding the relevant issue? Is he not ducking the difficult questions? Well, no. Because we should note that the psalmist not only alludes to the creation story, but he explicitly and unreservedly confirms God as the creator. You can see it in the verses 2, in verse 3a, in verse 5, verse 24. So that is the first so what conclusion. God is creator. But then we also see the psalmist moving from what God did at the beginning to what he still does today. As we mentioned, many of the verbs are in the form translated as the present. There is an emphasis on the implications of the creation story for today. And that is that God rules. Not only creator, but also king. Ruler, provider, sovereign, whatever word you want to use. And we see that in the verses 3b, in verse 4. In the verses 25 and 26, where he is controlling the forces of nature. In the verses 9 and 19, where he is regulating the seasons in his covenant with Noah. And in the verses 21 and 23 and 27, where he is feeding man animals and maintaining the balance in creation. So clearly, forcefully, poetically, and so full of admiration and joy, the psalmist proclaims God as creator and as king. So the psalmist is far from ducking the so-called relevant questions. Because you see, the difficulty with God as creator and sovereign is not logical or intellectual. It is not very difficult to understand that even when you think you have convincingly identified some law of nature explaining this or that, as Hawkins and Dawkins do, that when you get back into time, you can never exclude the unique event with which it all started. Nor can you logically exclude going forward in time that you will not make a discovery which refutes your theory. And it is also not very difficult to understand and to recognize that in every phase of history, the academic establishments of the day thought that they had the best and most convincing explanation for this or that, only to be overtaken by older and newer theories. 
nor is it very difficult to see that the Church should never have allowed itself to be egged on by part of the academic establishment of the time which held to an Aristotelian worldview and thought that the sun revolved around the earth and to take sides against the perceived and irritating upstart called Galileo who held with Copernicus that it was the other way around. Careful exegesis could have told them that the Bible does not speak or comment on this question. Nor is it very difficult to see that the gaps in our knowledge, which science is supposed to close and thus squeezing God out as the explanation, that the gaps are actually widening. Because the more we understand and the more we realize how much there is that we don't. And when you have looked recently at programs like the Blue Planet, it appears much more likely that there is a God as creator than to believe that chance mutations and natural selection brought about this amazingly beautiful and also immensely intricate balance, which in fact is highly improbable. And it requires the believers in evolution to postulate hundreds of millions of years just to make the improbability at least possible in theory. So it's best to recognize that when it comes to formulating, preferring or promoting academic theories, evolutionism, creationism or otherwise, that some multi is in order. Now the real difficulty is not intellectual or logical, but the difficulty with accepting God as creator and king is, at the end of the day, emotional. Then it is not man at the center, but God at the center. And then it is not my agenda, but God's agenda. And that is the very point. The critical issue the psalm confronts us with directly. As it was confronted with in Genesis 2, where the point was to trust and obey. Or in Job 38, where the point was that you cannot question God your sovereign. So why are these reactions so oft, often so venomous and so vitriolic? Well, when you believe the psalm, man goes from the zenith of evolution and from the explainer of it all and from pushing God out into the gaps and then away to, our psalm tells us, a dependent creature. Because God is the king and the creator. So the psalmist goes straight for the juggler. And whether your name is Hawkins or Dawkins or Brian Cox or whether you are some celebrity or some other dignitary, you are made to glorify God. God as your Lord and creator. And if you do not do that, then there is verse 35. So, then now what are the practical implications? Now what? What does, the live, what does the psalm say about this? What are we going to do? And what are the consequences for our life as we look forward to the next year of our Lord 2018? Now what? Living in his providence and praise. You see, the first conclusion was, the first the conclusion was already there in the framing of the psalm in its beginning and in its ending. 
and that is meditate on the Lord as the Almighty Creator. On, as verse 1 says, his splendor and his majesty. On the beauty of creation which reflects his beauty and might. And then, verse 33, praise him. It is not our human glory that is the goal of our life, not our own happiness, the prime objective down here. And maybe you are very impressed by the glorious achievements of man in science or in society. But the storming of heaven and the dethroning of God, as they were trying to do in the building of the Tower of Babel, it can easily turn nasty. As, in fact, the history of many philosophies that believed in progressive evolution of man and society have demonstrated. And maybe you are looking forward to 2018 with cheerful optimism. And that's great. But human health and happiness are frail, and the bright and solid future can easily evaporate or turn into ashes. It is, of course, a recurring theme in the Psalms. Glory and happiness lie not in things and stuff of this world, but in praising the Lord. After that is what man had been made for. So the first now what, or what to do, is to praise him. And the second now what, or what to do, is to live in the awareness, in the certainty, and in the comfort of God's providence. Maybe for you 2018 looks like a year of sunlit uplands, of everything going gangbusters and glorious, of opportunities and adventures galore. Then remember, God did provide. And be careful to continue to trust and obey him and not to fall into temptation of storming heaven and building the Tower of Babel. For there God had provided the Babylonian confusion And that will indeed be the end of all the great plans and the ground speaking. We have seen it all happen before. Instead, may your meditation be pleasing to him as you rejoice in the Lord, your provider. But then maybe for you, 2018 looks like a year of trials and tribulations and challenges and uncertainties. And from an economic perspective, you can be certain of the uncertainties. Brexit, growth, employment, interest raised, housing costs, whatever. And from a geopolitical perspective, it's the same. There are leaders here, all go hung to hit the button. And rulers in other parts of the world, they rip and rape. And while others elsewhere only seem to weasel and waffle. And our personal life may have its own challenges. But, says the psalmist, God will provide. He marks the seasons and so guarantees the continuation of this world. He keeps the pattern of day and night and so man goes to his work. He provides food at the proper time. He opens his hand and all are satisfied with good things. So then when you look at 2018... And you wonder about the where from, where to, and what for. And you look at creation as it is created and sustained around you. Then you may sing with the old hymn, 
O Lord my God, when I in awesome wonder consider all the works thy hand has made, I see the stars, I hear the mighty thunder, thy powers throughout the universe displayed. When I through woods and forest glades I wander, I hear the birds sing sweetly in the trees. When I look down from lofty mountain grandeur and hear the brook and feel the gentle breeze, then the conclusion is, then sings my soul, my Savior God to thee, how great thou art, how great thou art. Amen.